All right, church, let me invite you into Acts chapter 13 this morning. And uh, as you get there, if you're not already, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about why I'm so excited. In the hierarchy of things I love, uh, Jesus is way up at the top, and then his word is right under that, and then his people is right under that. I have this crazy, just God-infused passion for the local church, and so I get to be here this morning in the presence of Christ, in his word, with his people, so you guys are hitting like the top three things in my life. Um, there's a, a fourth, and that's my family, and unfortunately they were going to come, but weren't able to join us this uh, morning, so I'd love to introduce them to you. I have a photo of them. Um, well, this is my sweet family. Uh, my wife, Julie, we've been married 13 years. Um, somewhere in those early years, we got involved in church planting as God infused our passion for the local church. During that early season, he gives Adelaide's our eight-year-old daughter now, and uh, she walked with us through that first season of planting a church. We were just on the launch team for that and participating. Then it, I came on staff, and then um, through that, God moved us down to Tampa, Florida to plant another church out of that passion. And somewhere down there, he multiplied not just a church, but our children, uh, we've got Fiona there in the front and Ty, our, our little reckless monster. Um, and, and this is actually a pretty accurate depiction of our, our family. We love to do things outside. I think uh, every church should do some good creek stomping, or every family should do some good creek stomping together. I said church because it's like family. You guys should do that together. Um, this was taken this summer after we'd moved back from Tampa. I'll just be honest, we didn't do a lot of creek stomping in Tampa. Um, because we love our children and don't want to feed them to alligators and, and, and the other things that are down there that are dangerous. But, you know, I think if you were to, to define some of the values of our family, being outdoorsy is definitely one of them. But I would say this about that principle. It, that's not a theory for us. We don't sit at home in front of the TV and be like, yeah, we like it outside. Those two things don't line up. It's really, we say we're an outdoorsy family because we love to be, the people in our family love to be outside. For all of our children now, it has been one of the first words they learn, and they always say, side, side, and they just stand at the door and whine about it. I can't even go out to check the mail without a flood of kids just flowing out into the yard with me just to be outside. And so we're an outdoors family by the practice of being outdoors. And, um, you know, that principle applies to a church as well. You could say a lot of things about what your church is, and, and we do. We talk about what our church is like. Maybe it's a, a loving church, or it's a community-driven church, or it's a Bible-preaching church, but you realize that that doesn't actually describe some organization, right? The church isn't just like a business with a building. The church is the people, and your church is only those things if you are those things. Does that make sense? And so when we get into the word today, we're talking about a particular kind of church with a particular kind of people. And the title of our message, Great Commission People in a Great Commission Church, the whole thing behind the Great Commission Collective is churches that are passionate about the Great Commission. And uh, there are a number of passages in scripture that define the Great Commission, but you may have the one in Matthew 28 memorized. If you do, I'd invite you just to recite it with me so we can refresh that in our minds. It was Jesus himself telling the church what to be and do. He said, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then what did he say? He said, now go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. 
And then he says this crazy profound thing. He says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the great commission he gave the church. And my passion to get to be here with you this morning is to help inspire you in the being of a Great Commission church. Now the good news is, scripture doesn't just tell us that that's what we're supposed to be, we have pictures of that. That's what we're looking at this morning in Acts 13, is one of the best pictures we have in all of scripture of Great Commission people in a Great Commission church. And I'll just tell you right up front, if you're taking notes this morning, if you're jotting anything down, this is the thing that we probably are gonna get out of the morning today, that Great Commission churches, are made up of Great Commission people who are passionately pursuing Jesus Christ and his mission through two main things, through worshiping and through sending. Great Commission churches are made up of Great Commission people who are passionate about Christ and his mission through being worshipers and senders. And so this church, your church, we say a Great Commission church, it's what we want to be. It's what Jesus told us to be. And so today we're gonna press in and find out what it means, how we should actually live our lives to be that way. So join me in Acts 13. Let's just read, we're gonna be in five verses this morning. Acts 13, verses one through five. Uh, Join me as I read through this. Scripture says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they, the church, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And now verse four. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had John to assist them. That's what we're looking at this morning. And I'm mindful whenever a guy like me shows up and preaches a message like this, we just landed in the middle of a story. It it says at the beginning, uh, now there were. Uh, And so let's back up and find out what the story is just a little bit. This is the book of Acts. It's the second half of a scripture writer named Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and his own purpose in writing those, uh, he said, is so that we would have assurance. He was gonna present an orderly account of how the church came to be so that we would have assurance that the things we've heard are true. So literally, the text we're reading this morning uh, was written so that you and I sitting in a church 2,000 years later would be able to read this and be assured of where did all this come from? Why are we here doing this today? So let me just take you back without rereading all of the book of Luke and Acts to this point. Let me just give you a brief history of the church to catch us up with this story. Um, There was a guy named Jesus. Are you tracking with me so far? Okay, so there was a guy named Jesus. Um, It was God's son come into the world born as a man and with him bringing a message. But the reality is it wasn't just a message like a, of, of teaching, it wasn't a certain lifestyle, um, it wasn't even just the message of the gospel. When Jesus proclaimed his own message, he called it, he said, the kingdom being at hand, he says in Mark 1. Jesus declares that with him and in his message is the kingdom of God, God's own present 
reign and rulership on the earth had come into the world with Jesus. That's pretty radical. God's always been in control of everything, but in this moment with this man, God himself enters into the world and his presence on earth is now affecting his reign and power. And so Jesus proclaims that message and then he invites people to follow him in it, to join him in that kingdom. And so he calls out disciples, followers, right? And then they follow him and they join him and they're going after the kingdom. And then Jesus' own life isn't just teaching, he actually demonstrated in the world God's present power over all things. And we saw that Jesus demonstrated God's kingship, his power, his authority over spiritual things, casting out demons over uh, earthly things, just the weather and seasons and even over life and death, healing people and bringing Lazarus back to life. So Jesus proclaims the power of God. People are following him. The days are awesome. And then he died, right? Can you imagine being one of those followers just in that moment? Jesus is like, the power of God is here. But then that guy dies. Kind of shakes your faith a little bit, I would imagine. But you and I know the rest of the story, right? We know what they didn't know in that moment. Jesus didn't stay dead. The power of God at work raised him from the grave and sealed for us the promise of the truth that death and sin have been overcome in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus rose and he says to his disciples, his followers, he gathers them together. He gives this great commission. I'm returning to the father. I'm going to reign from heaven, but I leave you with the kingdom, the presence of God's authority on the earth. And and you then, and, and we see the same commission at the beginning of Acts, he says to go and be witnesses to that. He says here in Jerusalem, that's where they were gathered, but then to Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. That's the great commission. And he said, the Holy Spirit's gonna come on you. And so Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes and empowers and fills and those people became a church and they go out that day and they proclaim Jesus to Jerusalem. And if you know the story, did you know 3,000 people got saved that first day? First mega church. But the reality is the mission was supposed to go out from there. And so God used this crazy circumstance in Acts chapter six, Stephen uh, is persecuted and murdered for his testimony as witness of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, persecution rains down on the church, trying to, d- to drive it apart, trying to, to snuff out the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love how God used that aggression against the church to drive people out of Jerusalem and take the gospel with them little side note here friends God often uses things we look at as great trial and tragedy to advance his gospel in ways we don't even understand and so some of those people leaving Jerusalem go back to a place where most of them were from called Antioch and they start a church and then Jerusalem where the church was headquartered sends a guy named Barnabas to go pastor that church along the way he picks up a guy named Saul who we know is Paul in the New Testament and he says come help me lead this church So we've got now, now there were in the church at Antioch. You see where we got in chapter 13? There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. There's Barnabas, Simeon, and these other guys, including Saul. Now, we fast forward. This is the launching point for the whole church planting movement in the New Testament. From here, Saul and Barnabas go out and plant church after church after church after church. Do you know what those churches did? They planted church after church after church after church church after church and then this church was planted and you've participated in church planting 
And so this is the middle of that story that we drop into today. And if we want to be faithful in that work, let's examine this text together and really unpack what is a Great Commission church filled with Great Commission people. Three things we're going to observe today. Here's the first observation of a Great Commission people. We serve Christ like it's what we were meant to do. Look with me at the people and what they were doing. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. These are church leaders. They're preaching, they're exhorting, they're telling the church about Christ and his will and word. And they were named for us, Barnabas. Simeon, who was called Niger, um, historically, scholarly, we believe that means he was from Africa. Uh, Lucius of Cyrene, a guy from a different region. Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, literally, what that means is the local king who had rulership over this region. Menaean grew up, they were, the term uh, lifelong means crib mates. He was li- like buddies, childhood friends with the local, the ruling king of the area. Um, not just Menaean, but then also Saul. Can, can you imagine this? Saul wasn't even like the senior pastor. He was just a staff pastor. In the, can you imagine Paul, the guy we think of as like the... You got Pastor Tony, you got Pastor Paul. That's a wild thing to think about, but that's what's going on in this church. And so that's who we have, and I love that it's a diverse group of people called from all kinds of backgrounds. Isn't that a beautiful thing about the church? People from all over joined together with this one purpose. What were they doing? It says, while they were in the context, they were worshiping the Lord. That defines the activity of the church gathered together under its leadership. They were worshiping the Lord. Now, scripture was originally written in the Greek language, and so we translate ancient Greek into English to read this, and the word worshiping, I think, has a lot more context than we can understand from the translation. So in case you didn't bring your Greek Bible today, uh, I did a little digging, and and the word there for worship is actually a Greek word, lechergeo, And if we understand what that means in context, it means to do a service or duty on behalf of someone. The best way to describe that is probably when we think about our uh, military, we think about the Army, uh, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard, Air Force, we think about doing a service, being active service uh, men and women, right? Serving on behalf of our country. Uh, If you've ever served on behalf of our country in one of those, I just want to thank you. You've performed a duty and a service on my behalf, on all of our behalf. And and that's what it looks like. And in fact, we, we don't call those people civilians anymore, right? They cease to be civilians. Now they're serving on behalf of the country. And that's the picture of the word Geo. This work, this activity is performing a duty on behalf of someone. So, okay, why do we translate it worship? Why were they worshiping? Well, look at who the object was. Who were they doing the duty on behalf of? What it says, it says, they were worshiping the, what does your Bible say? The Lord. That's why we've translated it worship. This is a picture of a group of people who have ceased to be civilians in the world and have given themselves completely over to the duty the service of doing everything they do unto the Lord. And so that would have included gatherings just like this with singing and preaching and ministering to your kids and to each other. But all of those things weren't just done like, I'm not just here for you. I'm doing a service unto Jesus himself, the Lord. In fact, another Greek word, Lord, here is curious. It means master. And so they've given their lives over to this service of the master. 
the singular focus of their activity. This is the only time some of these guys are ever named in scripture. And the only thing we know about them was their entire life was built around serving Jesus Christ. Why? Well, it's because they understood that's literally what they were meant for. At the heart of the gospel is a people who were dead unto ourselves in our rebellion against God and in our sin, we were condemned to death. And what the gospel does is it reunites us with God by taking away our sin and death and replacing it with new life. Scripture says that we have literally already been made into new creations. But not that we would just go back to our old purpose, new people, a possession of God for his new purpose in our life. And that's what we see playing out among these people is their sole purpose is to minister before and serve before the Lord. That's what this church in scripture was known for. Its people were known for their worship. Is that what you and I are known for? That's a logical question. Is that what we're known for? I'd like to think yes. I'd like to think that uh, if God willing they ever tell our story someday, it won't be written in here, but maybe someday they'll tell our story and what will they say about us? when they use our real names, like in this text, when they use your name and they say that we're in that church, these people, what will they say about our lives? What was it defined by? What kind of church were we worshiping? I think that's an awesome thing to aspire to. But the problem, friends, is that we live in a culture, in a world, in a country that does not value being known for that. Uh, we value being known for a lot of other things. We value being known for our success, our fame, our influence, our performance, what we can do for the world and life, how we stand out from everybody else. Um, now I'm not telling you don't pursue any of those things. Don't leave here today and say, well, Pastor Christian told me I had to quit my job, my sports team, and my high school and just go after Jesus. Because listen, friends, sometimes those are the means by which God puts himself on display through his people. But at the end of the day, we can only be known for one thing, our success in the world or our life for Jesus Christ. I know it's really hard to think of examples. Is it possible to actually be known for both? Secretly, I think most Christians want to be known for both. I want to be a rock star for Jesus, and I wouldn't mind being famous in the world. I think it's immensely difficult to come up with historical examples of people who've done that well. Uh, in our generation, a guy like Tim Tebow comes to mind, who God has graced with incredible athleticism and a powerful testimony of God's truth. And yet, if we look at that guy's career and we really understand the implications, at the end of the day, that guy has to choose which is more important. And he has willfully laid down athletics time and time again for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to choose. Young people in the room, you've got a lifetime ahead of you for which you will have to choose what your life will be known for. For all of us at any age, today is a day to continue to make a choice. With any life we have been given, we choose. Will we be known for having served Jesus Christ or some other pursuit? We know this church models for us Great Commission people's singular pursuit is serving Jesus himself. But that isn't the only thing they were doing. There's more. Look with me back at verse two. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. 
And then as we go on, that word fasting shows up again. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So they do this. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Here's the second thing Great Commission people do. We seek God like everything depends on it. That's what we see happening here. We serve Christ like it's what we were made for. Uh, and we seek God like everything depends on it. They were worshiping and fasting, fasting and praying. They were giving up food on purpose. Now, I think that's kind of a weird thing because if you were to ask me, hey, how do I fulfill the Great Commission? I'd say, well, I think it's pretty simple. Jesus told us how, right? We, we, uh, we tell people the gospel. We're witnesses to the truth. And then we see that they're baptized, converted into the faith. And then we teach them everything we can about what's in the Bible. That's Go make disciples. That's fulfilling the Great Commission. I can tell you what wouldn't have been first on my list uh, if you'd asked me. Stop eating. Listen, here's how you're going to fulfill the Great Commission. Just stop eating. But they've inserted this step in there toward the fulfillment of the Great Commission that I think we need to unpack a little bit and just talk about for a moment. What is fasting? Let's talk about fasting for a second. Why is that here? Um, there's a seminary professor and a theologian named Don Whitney and uh, he's done a lot of writing and teaching about this, and he says there are a lot of particular reasons you might fast, but there's one overarching purpose for fasting. Fasting is always intended to create an increased uh, awareness of and pursuit of God. Fasting is designed for an increased awareness of and pursuit of God, and so that's what we see. They give up food, but then there are a lot of things you could fast from, right? Things you could give up for the sake of increasing your awareness and pursuit of God. I think about some of those things that distract us, social media, um, a lot of our personal technology that we're always attached to. We could choose to put that aside and fast from it for the sake of an increased awareness and pursuit of God. Um, it could be hobbies or particular indulgences, things that maybe aren't wrong, but that create distractions for us. We could choose to set those aside. But here's what's interesting, in scripture, Fasting is always food, occasionally food and water. So what's the big deal about food then? There are lots of things we could fast for. Why is it always food in scripture? I'll tell you why. Because if you were to say fast from your, your cell phone or technology this week, you wouldn't die. I'm gonna let that sink in for just a minute. I'm not sure we believe that. I've cut off from the world. I don't... I feel like I'm dying. You say, well, I, 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 here's what would happen. Uh, corn's pretty high right now. If I don't have my phone, I'm gonna have lost in a cornfield and then I would die. Um, I don't know how to get anywhere without my GPS. Yes, but it wouldn't be the lack of phone that killed you. It'd be the lack of food and water, right? That's at the core of why people fast from food. It is the ultimate picture, not just of distraction, but of being satisfied with something. I'm hungry, so I eat and I have satisfied that sense. When we look at people who choose to give up food for a purpose of pursuing God, literally what they're saying is, I'm not willing to be satisfied with something else until I get more of you. I'm so desperate for you, God, and your presence and your direction in my life that nothing else satisfies me until I've sought you like that. I'm hungrier for you, Lord, than for anything else. That is a powerful testimony of their dependence on God. It's literally to say I'm more dependent on God now 
than I even am on food to keep me alive. That's a powerful thing to be able to say. And so we have a picture of a people who are pursuing more of God. They're not just worshiping in response to God, they're pursuing more of God. They're literally saying, we want you more. It's a picture of a people in this church who are not content with having encountered Jesus Christ one time. A lot of us have that initial encounter with Jesus Christ when we're convicted of our sin and we recognize our condemnation and we cry out for forgiveness and we put our faith in Jesus and we have that encounter. But these are people who understand Jesus said, uh, it's not for your forgiveness and then go on your own way, have fun. He says, I'm with you always. And so they weren't content with a one-time encounter. They wanted the Jesus who's present always, even more than they want to eat on a regular basis. The Jesus who himself said, I am the spring of living water. Whoever comes to me will not thirst. And for them to say, then we want to keep being in Christ so that we have more of this life. There are people who are saying there's more to do There's more to this mission that we have to figure out. There's more to fulfilling what Jesus has left us here to accomplish and we can't do it without him so they're seeking him desperately. I would tell you I'm convicted by this um, because no joke, this is my whole job and yet there are days that I'm just as prone to wake up and do it my own way and neglect dependence on Christ for the work and I'm gonna guess I'm in a room full of people that are fairly normal like I think I am and trust that we don't approach every day of our lives with the kind of dependence that we need Jesus' presence more than anything else. That we actually can't go about this very work that we've been called to. You realize when he said go make disciples, he's actually saying go rescue people from hell. That's a spiritual thing. None of us have the power to do that. And, and when we go about this or any aspect of our life and we think we can do it on our own, um, can I say it's one of two conditions? We're either incredibly overconfident in our own ability to think we can save people uh, and lead something supernatural or we're incredibly naive that this is a spiritual war we're participating in and we don't understand how desperately we need the help. I also know, just for the record, I'm not smart enough to figure out the next step. We need God's constant guidance for us in his own mission. Um, I am convinced of what scripture says that my thoughts are not as high as his, so let's surrender ourselves in desperation for him to keep fueling the mission. Jesus is the one fulfilling his promise. It's a question of will we seek him? Do we believe we need him? And, And I would encourage you, church, if you have not disciplined yourself in fasting to that end, uh, start with a meal. A day, a few days? What does it look like to reorient your heart and mind toward that kind of desperation? And it isn't just about fasting or giving up food. What this is really about is getting your heart and mind in a place of trusting that you are, in fact, desperate for Jesus Christ. Um, That we'd be a people committed to more prayer. Are you desperate enough this morning with whatever you came to church on your heart to share it with somebody else to pray for you about it? Are you desperate enough to believe it's God alone who can resolve that and that you can't leave here and just figure it out? Would you get somebody else to pray with you for that thing? Would we be a people of that kind of prayer? That's the kind of desperation, which is why we see that they go back to fasting and praying. I love this picture. 
Here's this church worshiping, seeking more of God. God, how do we do this mission? What's next for us? And then the Holy Spirit shows up and tells them. He says, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. So then after fasting and praying some more, seeking more confirmation from the Lord, then they did it. And that's really what we see then. The, the third thing here is after serving and seeking, we send. The third thing Great Commission people do in a Great Commission church is they send or they go uh, and they do it as if we're doing God's own work on the earth. They're sending and going like they're doing God's own mission. That's what's taking place here. They became a worshiping and a sending church. See, the mission of Jesus inherently involves going and sending to the ends of the earth. And Paul makes it really plain to the Roman church. He's like, how are those people gonna hear the good news of Jesus Christ that saves if nobody preaches that to them? And then he says this really unique thing. He says, and how will somebody preach that to them? He doesn't say if they don't go. He puts the emphasis on if they're not sent. How will the gospel go forth if no one is sending people out? It's such an incredible picture because in reality, the church is made up of the place where God is at work and people don't just leave that and go do it. They're sent from that. And this is a picture then of a church where everybody participates. The emphasis is actually on the sending here in the first part of this text, and then it shifts to the going. You don't have to be the person who goes into the mission field to participate in the work we're called to do in the Great Commission of sending people. And this church has the privilege of getting to, to do both, to be senders or goers. And it's not the first time that the church in Antioch had sent something. They had actually sent money prior to this. They found out about the needs of the churches in other regions, and so they pulled together a collection and they sent that. So this is a church that's sending resources and people and fulfilling the Great Commission through that very sending. I think about Paul, it's really interesting, from the time that Paul had had his encounter with Jesus Christ and had been told that he'd been set apart to be a missionary, almost two years have passed. And so Paul's been waiting as the Lord's been using him, but he hadn't been sent yet. I honestly believe in a room full of people like this with the Great Commission as their passion and pursuit, if we would be a church of people who serve and seek, that there are people in this church who God is preparing to go. And you may or may not already have that on your heart. You may already have a sense of that but I do believe God has for some people in this room the call to go. And when the time comes to do that, the rest get to send and we all participate together. And the beauty is you guys have already been doing this. You've been sending money and you've sent people to help with the mission. You've sent to Cameroon and to Malaysia and to Croatia and Turkey and whether you realize it or not, you're in a church that's already doing this. And so my goal today, my desire is not to tell you something you don't get, but as a partner, as a brother in the ministry with you to encourage you to continue the work. Continue being a great commission people, not waiting for your church leaders to just do this, but being people in this kind of church together who, who serve like it's what you're meant to do, who seek and who will then contribute to the sending. And I think it's crazy because the church didn't have to make something up, right? 
It does not indicate that they got together and they dreamed up the next place they wanted to plant. The Holy Spirit was the one who was providing the conviction and the opportunity. How do we get to the Great Commission? I honestly believe if you guys make your pursuit about Christ and more of him, he will supply in that kind of church, that passionate for him, he'll supply the opportunity to multiply that to other places. And that's what we see. And the great privilege of that work, if I could just point out maybe my favorite part of this passage, the great privilege, look with me at verses three and four. The church gathered together, fasts, they've been fasting, they've been praying, and, and, they, and they culminate that in putting their hands on them. We don't believe there's any particular power in that other than official encouragement and investment and affirmation as a church united around this, they put their hands on them and they sent them off. Just important to note, verb sent, who did the sending in that passage? I'm gonna have you answer that. Who were the people that did that? The, the church in Antioch. Look at verse four. So being sent by the Holy Spirit. Do you realize in that moment the work the churches were doing was supernatural? They participated in something that God took the credit for because God initiated it and they were faithful to do it and in the end they did something that was God's own work. Now I don't know about you but I wanna live a life that matters and if I can literally put my hands on something that God claims, and I don't think he puts his name on a lot of things that aren't his. I believe God puts his name on things that are perfect and live up to his glory and all of his purposes. If I can literally put my hands on his work, that's what I wanna live my life for. And I'm telling you that to live a life like this is a life not lived in vain. If God is willing to call you his people and call the work you do his, that is a powerful thing to live for. And it is then the thing that drives how hard it is to do some of these things. I'll just tell you, church, it's hard to be sent. It's hard to go. Um, when we left Indianapolis to go to Tampa, originally we left a lot of dear friends and family. We left a ministry that was thriving that there were a lot of people in that church that said, I don't understand how we could send them out. They're so vital. I cannot imagine it was easy for this church who had their planting pastor Barnabas and Saul himself in their midst to send them out and not have some kind of grief in that. There's some human hardship involved. So why on earth do we do this? It's hard, it's crazy to move to a new place that you don't know people and start a church to spread the gospel, to evangelize. I had the privilege uh, last week of being in a service where we put our hands on a couple who were moving with their three children, including an infant, to India, to remote India, to proclaim the gospel. Why do we do that? Because of this. Because it's the work God puts his name on. And, and look at the substance of that work. Look with me at verse four and five being sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God. At the whole heart of this, the reason we do this is that the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forth. What makes it worth giving everything else up for? That the same gospel that would proclaim to you and me that we can be rescued from our rebellion against God that if we would turn from our sin and renounce that and put our faith in Jesus Christ, that the death he died is applied to us, the life he lives is promised to us, and eternity awaits us with the king. That gospel 
is worth going out. When we know we have eternity ahead, we can give up anything in this life to make that possible. And friends, just to come back to that too, it's the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ that actually takes us all the way back to the beginning. When I don't feel like serving, and I'm not prompted to, but I know that's what I'm called to, it's the gospel that reminds us I've been saved to that purpose. That I was dead before and I've been made alive and now I have a life worth living toward an end that matters. The truth is, hey friends, just get this. The gospel reminds us how desperate we are to seek. When I don't feel that desperate, the gospel reminds me that I couldn't do anything on my own. The gospel reminds me I had no access to God and that I've been granted access through Jesus Christ, that I can pray, and scripture says that he hears us. What a beautiful thing that is. And it's the gospel then, friends, the truth of Jesus Christ that allows us to go and send with joy in our hearts, knowing the mission is being fulfilled. So let me just remind you in this room today, if the gospel hasn't been fresh to you in a long time, it wasn't for a one-time encounter. It's the thing that stirs up all of this in our hearts. And honestly, if you've never encountered what we call the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for you, scripture says that if we recognize we deserve that death because we've rebelled against God's perfect, created, holy order and himself, scripture tells us that if we repent of that, we turn from that, We truly believe that Jesus lived a perfect life with no sin to die for your sin. And that the resurrection he was raised to is promised to us in him. Hey, someday friends, if he doesn't come back in our lifetime, our bodies are coming back up out of the ground in a new form and it's gonna be crazy. That gospel is proclaimed to you today for this same purpose, called into the Great Commission together. So I don't think of a better way to end a service like that than inviting the worship team up to continue being a people who are worshiping Christ. So as they come up and they prepare us to just proclaim our worship of this Savior, can I pray over you as a church? Joy to get to be here today, but let me just pray over you that this would be our combined collective life. Father, thank you for the gospel that ministers your truth to us. We once were dark, our minds were dark, we walked in ignorance, we had no idea, but you by your grace have convicted us of sin and made your truth of salvation known in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the work of that gospel in our lives, your present Holy Spirit. Thank you for the commission to have something to live for. And so God, I put this church before you, these beloved believers, your sons and daughters, that their hearts would be stirred afresh to serve you because you've gifted them for it. Every believer in this room have been, having been given a gift by you to serve your church, to worship you. Um, God, would you prompt us as we fail at our dependence to be restored and renewed in our need of you. And I pray that this church, through their serving and seeking, that your Holy Spirit would prompt would fulfill, would raise up, that this would be a church that has seen um, not just money, but people sent out with your kingdom fulfillment at hand. Would they receive the joy of that mission? And I thank you for a, a network of churches who are committed to that together. Would you bless all of these efforts in the unity that we share? But God, would you bless this church? Thank you for your word to us. Would it Would it bear much fruit in our lives in in Jesus' name and for your glory, for your glory in the church 
and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, especially ours. We offer this up to you. Amen.